following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Please join me this morning in a prayer of thanksgiving. Um, I thought we could do a, a meditation on um, considering this, that which we are thankful for. Um, so why don't we begin as we um, usually do, just with... Um, Closing our eyes if we're comfortable and getting a sense of just centering our hearts and mind and being present in this place, being present with one another, being present with God. And um, so if you're comfortable, you can close your eyes um, and just begin by getting a sense of your whole body just sitting here, sitting in that chair and noticing your breath, that simple yet powerful reminder of the life that God has given us. And as we focus that attention, I invite you to consider one thing, though there may be plentiful things to be thankful for this morning. I want you to just consider one thing that you're thankful for today. And allow yourself to Meditate on that. Consider that. Thinking about all the ways in which you are thankful for this one aspect of your life. Whatever it may be. This act of considering and praying for, meditating on that which we are thankful is very powerful and protecting us from sorrow or despair. And I invite you to pray with me this prayer of thanksgiving. And just listening to these words. God of all blessings, source of all life, giver of all grace, we thank you for the gift of life, for the breath that sustains us, for the food of this earth that nurtures life, for the love of family and friends without which there would be no life. We thank you for the mystery of creation, for the beauty that the eye can see, for the joy that the ear may hear, for the unknown that we cannot behold, filling the universe with wonder, for the expanse of space that draws us beyond the definitions of ourselves. We thank you for setting us in communities, for families who nurture our becoming, for friends who love us by choice, for companions at work, who share our burdens and daily tasks, for strangers who welcome us into their midst, for people from other lands who call us to grow in understanding, 
for children who lighten our moments with delight, for the unborn who offer us hope for the future. We thank you for this day, for life and one more day to love, for opportunity and one more day to work for justice and peace, for neighbors and one more person to love and by whom be loved, for your grace and one more experience of your presence, for your promise to be with us, to be our God, and to give salvation. For these and all blessings we give you thanks, eternal loving God. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you, Autumn. I wonder if our uh, podcast editors would be willing to include that prayer in the podcast this week. That might be kind of nice. Somewhere in this building are some notes <laughs> upon which is written the best sermon. <laughs> no, that's not it. It's in a Bible somewhere, probably. <laughs> there were a number of. No. Well, I'll tell you what. Here's what, here's what we'll do. <laughs> and then we'll just end it at Autumn's Prayer at the end of the podcast. Okay, so uh, t- in the moments, that, moments that follow in which I'll be scrambling around the building finding my notes, uh, turn to your neighbor and tell them the funniest experience you ever had playing that stupid game telephone where you whisper in somebody's ear and they whisper to the next person and they whisper to the next person. Have you all played this game? All right, maybe you don't have a, f- a funny memory of it, but I, if you don't, the person next to you does. <laughs> Um, so share those stories uh, I was going to kind of ask you to do that anyway and I'll be right back Okay, I'm ready when you are. All right, did anybody have a funny story? Nope. <laughs> Nothing you can share in church, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Didn't this always end up, uh, um, like by the end of the chain, it was, it was 
potty humor every time, wasn't it? Right? Or was that just me? <laughs> it, was my, it was my friends, right? I didn't have anything to do with it. I was just the last person, and I heard it perfectly. Um, well, that, uh, that little demonstration actually does apply to some of what we're going to talk about today, believe it or not. Um, but we are continuing in our, our John Signs of Faith series. Uh, this is the second week of the, of the third season, if you will, of this. We've broken it, we're breaking up into little parts, and our hope is to go through the entire Gospel of John eventually, and we'll see how long it takes us to do that. But um, for right now, we, are, we have come to John chapter 5. And what I'd like to do is read the first bit of that. And uh, if you would brought a Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 5. And uh, as much as we, ha- we, we love providing these Bibles for people, but if you do have your own, I w- would encourage you to bring it because I want you to be comfortable with your own thing, whether it's on an iPad or whether it's your, you know, your favorite Bible that your family gave you long ago or whether it's one you just bought or whatever. Even if it's one of these that you took home, which anybody's welcome to do, um, make it your own. If you are reading one of the red Bibles that you find around you, it's on page 866. And we're going to read chapter 5, the first 18 verses. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And you remember that up means usually uphill. Jerusalem's at the top of the hill. Um, he actually went south to Jerusalem, if you remember our little geography lesson last week which we might sometimes say is down on the map. Um, But he went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there's a pool called in Hebrew Beth Zatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured, now remember when John says the Jews, he's not talking about just like it's not, it sounds vaguely anti-Semitic to our ears, but he's just, he means the leaders of the Jews, the, the teachers of the Jewish law. Uh, so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take it up and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is still working, and I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. I wonder, did you notice anything unusual about that passage? Those of you who were reading along on the page might have noticed it if you have a very, very sharp eye. Would someone read 
verse 4 to me, please, from your Bible. <laughs> what is it? Does it have a joke? Why are you laughing? There is no four in most of your Bibles. Now, if you brought one from home, you might have a verse four. But in these Bibles and in most modern translations, there's no verse four. Where did verse four go? Well, to understand that, you have to understand a little bit more about the origins of these texts. And so I'm going to tell you a little about that now. Um, As I've mentioned many times, these uh, books of the Bible, which we have in English, are translated into English from uh, the ancient languages, Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. And in the case of the New Testament, uh, the stories of Jesus and the church, which is what we're looking at today, they come mostly from Greek. But where did the Greek come from? They were written originally by somebody, in this case, John. But we don't have the original writings. So we work, uh, not we, because I'm not a a Bible translator, but Bible translators work from copies of the original. And actually what they work from is copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of the original. Copies that have been made across the centuries of Christian history. And in the case of verse 4, that verse appeared... Uh, in English, in the most famous translation of the Bible that that exists, which is the King James Version, also known as the Authorized Version, if you uh, have a different perspective on things. And that that translation was made in uh, the early 17th century, 1611, in the reign of King James of England. That's why it's called the King James Version. Since that time, in the intervening, how many years is that? I'm not good at math. 400-ish years, biblical archaeologists have discovered lots more manuscripts, more copies of copies of copies, and what they have found is that the the new ones that they found are new because they're newer to us, but they're actually older than the ones that the translators used when they made the King James Version. Why does this matter? Well, the older ones are more likely to be accurate to the original ones. Does that make sense? Not in every case, but in most cases that is true. And guess what? Those older manuscripts do not contain verse 4. Well, some of them do. But the ones that do have a little mark on it where the copyist is recording the fact that this was in some doubt. That it was, there was doubt that this was in the original. And by the way, it's that fact that, which is the reason that we don't use the, the King James Version um, here at Artisan. Uh, and I, it's not because it has fancy language. As a matter of fact, as you can tell from our hymnody, we, we use hymns that contain that kind of old-timey language in them all the time. Um, and we're all smart enough, right? We've, we've at least gotten most of us through a couple of scenes of Shakespeare to, to sort of get those words, right? The reason that we don't use that translation is because as a, as a translation of ancient literature, it is inferior. 
It's, it's very good for its day. We have new scholarship that, that outdates it, essentially. Now, why am I telling you this in a sermon? And I, I, I imagine that there may be some of you in the room going, wow, this is not very spiritual. This is very academic. Maybe even this is very boring. But I actually do think there's a spiritual importance to this, this kind of fact and this kind of study and this kind of exploration of the origins of our text. And let me tell you why. Because many people who are raised in the Christian faith are raised with a certain set of assumptions about the Bible. Um, and then when those assumptions are proved conclusively wrong by history or science or things like that, their faith just goes boom. And they're like, well, if I can't trust that, I'm out of here. And I actually think it is quite possible, in fact, very desirable to have a robust intellectual understanding of the Christian faith and its history, including the history of our sacred text. Because despite the fact that there are occasionally these little things that come up where, oh, well, this thing that we thought was in the Bible, I guess it probably shouldn't have been in the Bible. Maybe. I, I, you know, and we have these questions. But those questions do not change the fact that we can, and, and, and I do, regard the Bible as the inspired Word of God, the greatest source of authority in our lives as Christians, the richest and deepest and most important resource for our, our spiritual Christian formation and for our growth in the faith. I think all of those things are true about the Bible, even though John 5, 4 maybe probably shouldn't have been in there. And I would hate to hear that anybody who came through these doors holding the Bible in high esteem and then eventually found out somewhere later that there's this little thing that was different than you thought would, would let your faith collapse like a house of cards over something like that. So that's why I think it's important that you know these kind of things and it's why, why I think it's worth spending time in a sermon about these kind of things. But still we may have a question. What happens in verse 4? And did it really happen? <laughs> Well, most of your Bibles that don't have verse 4 up in the text have a footnote that says it. So verse 3 says, In these um, porticos lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Where it skips to verse 5, let's look at that footnote. It says, Waiting for the stirring of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well from whatever disease that person had. So that makes the rest of the passage make a little more sense when he says the thing to Jesus about every time I, the water is stirred up, I try to go down, but somebody beats me to it. So knowing what's in verse 4 and knowing the histories of verse 4 textually, we want, might want to ask ourselves, did that actually happen? <laughs> Did an angel of the Lord really stir up the pool and make it like a, a one-time-only magic healing water thing? Well, I actually do have an opinion about that. You'd be very surprised to learn. <laughs> but I will withhold it, which you will be very surprised to learn. <laughs> 
but I'm going to withhold it to prove a point. The point is I don't think it matters. Ultimately, in the big picture, in the grand scheme of things, that's, that's why I said what I said before about the text. If we have verse 4, if we don't have verse 4, the story of the gospel as a whole is not materially or substantially changed. And by the way, when we're talking about ancient literature and mistakes in copies and manuscripts, this is a very, very rare occasion that the new, a, a document in the New Testament would have a problem like this. Um, let me give you just a couple of quick statistics about this kind of thing. If you look at the writings of Plato, you know the, the Greek philosopher Plato? Um, wrote in 400 to 300 BC. Our earliest copies of what he wrote come from 900 AD. It's 1,200 years later. And you know how many copies of it we have? Seven. Okay. But we trust the writings of, that the, these writings of Plato are the writings of Plato, right? Okay, Homer. Anybody read the Iliad or the Odyssey in school? Anybody pretend to read both of them in school? <laughs> Wrote, written in uh, about 900 B.C. Our earliest copies come from about 400 B.C. That's 500 years apart. We have about 640 copies of, of Homer's work. And they, they agree with each other about 95% of the time. So there's differences, you know. The documents of the New Testament, our copies that we have, are less than 100 years older than the original writings or newer than the original writings, I should say. So there's about 100 years, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, depending on your conservative or liberal bent on this kind of thing, but about 100 years apart from the original documents to our copies, uh, and we have um, 5,600 copies uh, just of the, uh, the Greek, and then there's a, an other languages that it was translated to that we have another 15,000 copies of. And the agreement in this case is 99.5%. As historical documents, the writings of the New Testament are absolutely unparalleled. There's nothing that's even close. So, you may not believe what the authors of the New Testament say, but it is not left as an option to you to disbelieve that what we have printed on the page is substantially different from what they wrote. And then if you want to go down that road a little further, you can consider how close it was to the actual events and whether that sort of thing would have stood up historically and so forth. But we won't go down that road just now. Know this, the New Testament, as we have it here, um, as we have it in the, the Greek copies especially, is extremely, exceedingly close to the original writings. So anyway, let's get to what I think really does matter in this particular story, and that's the third sign. You'll remember that this series is called Signs of Faith because there are seven miracles, signs, that John includes in his gospel, and that he includes them for one reason, that his readers then and now might believe in Jesus. And I think that there's one factor that makes this particular miracle important enough for John to have included it in his seven. And that is the fact that it took place on the Sabbath. Now, as most of you probably know, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. 
It was a, was a, and is, in some settings, a religious legal requirement to observe the Sabbath. And how it was observed by Jewish believers is an interesting story of progression. The origins of the Sabbath come in the story of creation, one of the stories of creation, when God is uh, making everything different on each day and for the first six days. And then on the seventh day, God rests. Right? So that's the origins. Then it appeared uh, in, in the Exodus. Do you remember when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt and then Moses led them out into the wilderness and they disobeyed and got sidetracked, you know, and whatever it was. Uh, what was it? Nancy said to me uh, this week, uh, an 11-day trip took 40 years. Um, and one of the things that happened there was that God rained down this, this bread. He wasn't paleo, apparently. Um, this, this manna from heaven... And the people were to collect it every day, except on the Sabbath day. And on the, the sixth day of the week, enough would fall that they could collect for two days. They didn't need to work on the Sabbath. And if they did, it would get rotten and get worms and things, um, and that kind of stuff. And then it was ex- the Sabbath was explicitly listed among the Ten Commandments later in this wilderness experience as one of the top ten big laws that the Israelites had to follow. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And then we know from other parts in the Hebrew Bible and other Jewish sources outside the Bible that there's a very specific list of prohibited activities for the Sabbath, included but not limited to plowing earth, sowing, reaping, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, probably knitting wool, Uh, (laughs) as a matter of fact we're going to get to you knitters in just a second (laughs) weaving making two loops have you made more than one loop today uh oh (laughs) weaving two threads separating two threads tying untying sewing stitching writing two or more letters Erasing two or more letters, building, demolishing, extinguishing a fire, setting a fire, and transporting an object more than four cubits, about six feet. Say, a mat? So what I want to say is that the Sabbath observance is really the pivot point for this whole passage. It's the thing that you have to understand to see why this particular miracle of all the the ones that Jesus performed made John's top seven. This is from the uh, first, second century. They didn't know that lists were supposed to be top ten lists. John made a top seven list. (laughs) That was lame, wasn't it? I'm sorry. I heard somebody go, (laughs) oh. What did Jesus do when you think about it? telling him to pick up his mat and walk. He instructed him to break the law. He instructed him to break the Sabbath. It's a pretty remarkable thing for a Jewish teacher to do, isn't it? Guess what else he did in telling the man to do that and in making him well? He healed him on the Sabbath, also against the law. So not only did he tell this poor man, been begging for 37 years, lame, to break the law, but he broke the law himself. 
which is maybe even a more remarkable thing for a Jewish teacher to do. Right? In a public sphere, to break the, the Sabbath. Here's what I think. I think that's the whole point. This moment of law-breaking and of aiding and abetting, (laughs) that is the very moment that Jesus offers healing and grace. It's as if he's saying to every observer, then and now, the law is no longer the thing that's going to save you. Keep it. Break it. Try. Fail. Do. Don't. None of that matters. All that matters is Him. He is all that matters. Not only will Jesus heal your brokenness, but He will cover your sin your failure to keep God's holy law. And these two things happen at the same moment, healing and grace, wholeness and forgiveness, freedom and redemption. Maybe even more profound than all of that, Jesus uses this whole encounter as a setup for another bold statement about who he is, about his oneness with the Father. Remember, because when he's questioned about his law-breaking, his response is not to make a clever, nuanced legal argument. And as we've seen elsewhere, Jesus is quite capable of outthinking the Pharisees (laughs) and of twisting their words on, on them. Not this time. What did he say this time? He takes you all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and he says... My father is still working. (laughs) He's not at rest yet. And I also am working. Wow. He has offered healing and grace and forgiveness all at once. At the same time, he has placed himself at one with the father. That's going to get him into big trouble. Uh, which is what we're talking about next week, actually. Go more deeply into it. But now, perhaps, with all of those things, in this one moment, you can see why John chose to include this particular miracle, why this truly is a sign for you of the faith that you ought to have in Jesus. And by the way, these parts of the story, they are... uh, They are not in doubt as part of John's (laughs) original manuscript. I think these do matter. Let's pray. God, creator of the universe, our Father, Jesus, our Son, our saving Son, give you thanks for these stories. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would quicken our conscience. You'd make it alive. You'd sharpen our minds. You'd soften our hearts. That we might see in these stories 
the Savior of our souls, the Savior of the universe, and come to love and worship and trust and follow him in everything that we do. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'd invite you now to respond to the Gospel of John. Respond to the story of Jesus um, at this great reenactment of his most important story. Joining with other Christians all the way back to his original disciples who sat around a table with him on the night that he was betrayed and received these same sacraments of bread and wine. Remembering his body broken for you. Remembering his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins joining in unity with each other and other Christians around the world and throughout time and receiving food for your souls nourishment for your hungry, weary spirits we'll continue to worship him together but if you are a follower of Jesus as of two minutes ago or fifty years ago this table is open for you. Let's join together in taking communion um, and receiving that grace from Jesus. Regardless of your spiritual state, you are welcome in this place, and if taking communion isn't something that would be appropriate for you, I'd just invite you to sit and think, pray if you'd like, listen, observe. Um, and if you have any questions or concerns, don't hesitate to talk to me or to one of the leadership team or make a comment on an info card. That kind of thing would be very welcome indeed. Um, let's continue to worship him together. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.